Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I am your host, Frank Zafiro. This episode, we will be talking to Kat Richardson, whose first series was urban fantasy, but it was also crime fiction, private investigator crime fiction. Uh, so we're going to stretch a little bit into uh, another realm or another subgenre of the crime fiction uh, world. Uh, and she's also written a uh, crime fiction book that is science fiction. So we're going to talk to her about both of those series. Uh, and uh, we'll also hear from uh, Down and Out Books about what's going on there, the, the sponsor of this show. Uh, and uh, have some book recommendations for you, as well as get a little bit of a flash forward for our next guest. So why don't we get things started with uh, the sponsor of Wrong Place Right Crime, and that is Down and Out Books. And here from Down and Out Books, to let you know what's going on uh, in the coming month, uh, is Eric Campbell, who is the chief editor and founder of Down and Out Books. Hi, Frank. This is Eric Campbell with Down and Out Books. I've got a couple new titles for your listeners. How about a little Tush Hog? Get your mind out of gutter, Frank. Tush Hog by Jeff Hess is a story of propulsion, the types of people who take what isn't theirs and the repercussions that follow. It's set in 1981 in Fort Myers, Florida, where Scotland Ross squares off with a redneck clan, a Cuban gang, a connected crime family from New York, and one friend who does him wrong. Crimes of violence, drugs, and theft pale in comparison to the failure of self-restraint. Can you believe, my cousin Vinny, there was not a novelization of that, that classic movie? Well, Lawrence Kelter couldn't either. So he worked with Del Launer, who wrote the original screenplay in 20th Century Fox to bring Vinny and Lisa to the literary page. If you thought they were funny on the big screen, just wait until you start turning the pages. He's updated it to include some additional scenes and even more laughs. This literary version of My Cousin Vinny will have you absolutely rolling on the floor. And don't forget, the sequel came out last year called Back to Brooklyn, so you can get it this year as well. Uh, your li listeners can find out more at downandoutbooks.com. And thanks a million for having me on the show, man. Thanks, Eric. I'm a bit biased because I have several books uh, published by Down Out Books, and a lot of my friends uh, and people that I uh, really admire their work uh, are also published by Down Out Books. But I got to tell you, it is a great publisher. A lot of good books coming out of Florida from them. Uh, if you like your crime fiction, dark and gritty and uh, sort of edgy, good place to start your your quest for for a good book. Uh, but uh, now let's move on to our guest for this episode. Today we're going to be talking to Kat Richardson. Kat is uh, from the Seattle area, and I first met her back in 2007 uh, at Left Coast Crime when it was there in Seattle. And she just was a super nice person, super engaging. Uh, also, she is a, a kind of a different kind of crime writer, as I mentioned in the intro. Her, her first series was kind of uh, urban fantasy, supernatural, horror, private detective crime fiction. Uh, and I'll let her tell you more about that. And now her newest series is uh, a little bit more of a hard-boiled, uh, sort of edgy you know, science fiction piece. Uh, so she's taken uh, really two different very takes on uh on crime fiction, and so I, I'm excited about that uh, angle as well. Um, anyway, um, without further ado, let's let's find out about Cat Richardson. 
Well, hi, Kat. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Uh, I We set this up quite a while ago, actually. I've been looking forward to it for a good five or six months, I think. Uh, yeah, that was back when I didn't quite know what was going to be happening between then and now. We had only just got a publication date. So at the time, we didn't even know what the title was going to be. So what you're referring to is your new series, right? Oh, yes. Why don't we start by telling tell us about the new series? Oh, well, the new series is a science fiction police procedural, and it's very noir in tone. Um, it's coming out from Pyre, or Peer, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, they're a subdivision of Prometheus books, and they're the science fiction and fantasy arm. The series is called Gaddis File. And the first one is Blood Orbit. It'll be out May 8th under the name K.R. Richardson. So why the change to differentiate from the Grey Walker series? Uh, Mostly for branding. It's still a mystery structure, but the emphasis and the characters are very different. Um, It's a lot grimmer, and it doesn't even remotely fall into the urban fantasy category. So we wanted to make sure that readers recognized they were getting something very different, even though it's still, you know, me writing it. Uh, also, we wanted to eliminate the, um, the possibility of male readers being reluctant to engage with a female writer. I don't know why it's a thing, it just is. So we wanted to reduce thing. that. It's a stupid thing, but it's a statistical um, fact that male readers, especially in the science fiction department, have uh, a certain reluctance to pick up unknown women. Hmm. I guess that's probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Or it could be a bad thing. (laughs) Uh, Depends on what you're into. Tell me more about the Gaddis Files. So who's the protagonist? There's a pair of protagonists, and they're kind of um, uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, not so much Dr. Watson. It's more like uh, Holmes had borrowed Nero Wolf's sidekick, Archie. And they're a pair of police officers on a planet that's owned by a corporation. And so the, uh, the inspector, Inspector Delal, and his, uh, his rookie uh, assistant, uh, Eric Matheson, and they get stuck with a mass murder that's very politically charged. And they have to figure out who done it and why done it and make sure that a lot of people who might otherwise be crushed in the middle of this investigation uh, survive. So, and it's very noirish, you're, you're saying? Oh, yeah, it's very noir. There's a lot of um, horrible things happening on this planet to a lot of people who don't have any control or feel they don't have any control over their destiny. And even the cops have a lot of problems, one of them being that they're not actually enforcing the law. They're enforcing corporate regulation. Mm-hmm. So sometimes justice is something you literally have to buy or you lose out. There's some pretty horrible things. I made a lot of um, political and social commentary without being specific to one political group or or situation, which is part of the reason I said it in a science fiction world was I wanted to talk very broadly about um, certain kind of social constructs and ideas that we have and general conflicts without talking about specific people or specific situations. I wanted the readers to be able to kind of universalize what they take from it and then make it a little bit more personal from their own experience 
instead of writing, you know, historical crime fiction, which was the other option. Well, science fiction is even better at providing the opportunity for an author to do that than crime fiction, which is a pr- pretty damn good medium for social commentary and, and doing it in a universal fashion. Like oh, yeah. I That's one of the things that I really like about uh, science fiction and crime fiction is that they do offer you those ways of kind of putting a social context in, but there's, there's two different... Um, two different avenues there with science fiction. You can build a world, you can make things allegorical, uh, you can play with technology in order to jump over certain storytelling issues. And crime fiction is always to a certain degree about the society because crime is based on what a society sees as taboo. So you can't have crime without a social structure. All crime evolves from society. so. Crime, good crime fiction is always going to talk a little bit about the society in which it takes place, and the darker the the story, the darker the aspects of society that are going to be examined. Absolutely, absolutely, and and science fiction gives you even more latitude to explore that. Um, what are some of the books that you've enjoyed that uh, that that have done this that have really made social and or political commentary in a subtle or maybe not so subtle <laughs> way. Oh, uh, well, in the science fiction uh, world, obviously, um, the book versions of, of Richard K. Morgan's uh, Takeshi Kovash novels, which are now being made into television series under the, the name of the original book, which was Altered Carbon. Um, oh, yeah, I saw that on Netflix. It's, in my, it's on my list to watch. Uh, have you seen that- it yet? Oh, yeah, I've seen a couple of the episodes. I I stopped watching for a while because I was busy writing. I'll have to go back. The first one actually takes a lot of stuff from the whole series and puts it in to contextualize things that he did later in the series. The the book is a little bit faster paced than the first couple of episodes of the series, and it's um, it's very focused compared to the first episode of the of the television series. So mm-hmm. if people are interested in it, I think it's really worthwhile to go and read the book if they haven't already. Now the, the blood orbit is the first in this series. Um, but you've, you've, have you already written the second or are you working on it? I'm working on it right now. Things ran very close to deadline with the, um, with the first book, uh, because we were still working out a lot of process and schedule, um, issues. So we didn't get it completely in the can um, until, oh my, the end of February. (laughs) So I hadn't been able to spend a lot of time with book two, so I'm actually about 12,000 words into book two right now. Just uh, drawing first blood then. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) very, very bloody. The first, you know, like 20,000 words or so of a book for me is always this horrible, tooth-pulling, miserable uh, process. Do you have a title yet for the second book? It has a working title, uh, okay. but Prometheus has a tendency to want to uh, adjust a title for marketing purposes. And not being a marketer, I never quite know what they're going to want. So I just kind of throw a title up and say, um, well, I'm willing to negotiate this. <laughs> so right now it's called Out System Strangers, which doesn't make a lot of sense if you haven't read the first book. But it's mostly about uh, people who don't seem to have identities suddenly dying of, of horrible 
um, crimes. And the, the big question is, how do people who don't seem to have any kind of record just appear on a planet and get killed? So um, it, it, there's the science fiction aspect of that, and then there's a bunch of um, there's a bunch of social and political stuff about identity and immigration and uh, social belonging versus ostracism, and how people who are part of one society become lost in another. So I'm playing with a lot of really weird things. Not at all weird. I think that's wonderful. I, I, there's so much there to to dive into. So you made this jump to science fiction, but uh, for nine books, uh, you were in the urban fantasy realm, and I would say the crime fiction subgenre of that, or crime oh, yeah. fiction corner of it, in the Greywalker series, and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. The main character, Harper Blaine, is a private investigator in Seattle, and she works for Ghosts and Monsters. It doesn't start out that way, she just falls into it kind of literally when she dies for a couple of minutes after being attacked by the subject of an investigation that she's engaged in and I kind of like the whole PI genre I've been reading it since I was a little kid I started reading mysteries when I was seven or eight with you know Encyclopedia Brown and (laughs) yeah honest yeah I know I remember Encyclopedia Brown (laughs) yeah I was never a big Nancy Drew reader strangely enough Uh, my sister was the Nancy Drew fan I started reading, you know, pretty heavy-duty science um, mystery stuff very early. Uh, my parents started me off with Ellery Queen when I was like 13 years old, and then I started, you know, went through all of, you know, the golden age detectives, you know, the amateurs and the professionals, and got into more and more heavy stuff. And then I discovered, you know, the hard-boiled school. Uh, all, you know, Hammett and Chandler and all those folks uh, whom I love very much. And I've always loved that structure. And I love the idea of here is a mystery, here is a breakage in the expected course of normal life, and a detective steps in and solves the crime, thus returning life to its normal direction. So I took that and discovered that the real-life PI industry was dying. And I thought, well, what can I do to make this character still interesting and relevant? And so I thought about that hard-boiled convention where the PI has a client and the client gets murdered about, oh, say, Chapter 3, <laughs> and the <laughs> PI continues to you know, go ahead and solve the crime anyhow. And I he thought, paid me, I owe him this, so the rest yeah. of this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> someone kills your partner, you ought to do something about it. And <laughs> I thought, well, I'm just going to start at Chapter 3 with the dead client <laughs> and go from there. Yeah. I was also influenced by a, a British television show um, from the late 60s, early 70s, called Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. It aired in the United States as My Partner, The Ghost, and it was about a pair of London detectives, one of whom dies in a car accident, and he gets hit by a car in a crosswalk, and he harasses his living partner to solve his murder, and then he hangs around and keeps on causing problems for him, and I thought, okay, that sounds like fun, and then I kind of mashed all these ideas together, having no idea that there was this thing called urban fantasy and that a lot of it was kind of mystery or adventure structured with these 
tropes that had been drawn from science fiction, fantasy, and horror. I had no idea. And then suddenly I realized, oh, I'm an urban fantasy writer. <laughs> did you, once you'd finished Greywalker, the, the first book, did you make changes to it in order to more closely adhere to some of the structures within the urban fantasy uh, genre? Or did it just plop right down in it pretty well fully formed? The first book was its own thing. And as the series went on, each book had a slightly different structure, very deliberately. The, the second one was the, um, the straight ghost investigation, where there were people investigating a ghost. So it was a little bit of the Scooby-Doo idea. And then the third one, I called it the monster in the sewer book. And then there was another one that I thought of as you know, the um, the hardcore adventure book where they went out places they had never been before and, and learned new things about themselves by, by throwing themselves into this strange situation, which was not exactly what was happening in urban fantasy. I always ended up sitting in kind of an odd place in the market. I never quite fit the niche. And one of the issues was that I kept any kind of romantic thread very much at the bottom. There, There is a, a long-term romance over the course of the entire book, but it is never center stage in the story. It's just a sub-thread, and it's a character development thread because, you know, real people have relationships. And I thought, well, you know, she needs to have one too. So I, I gave her one, and, you know, she has family, and they show up and cause problems the way families do. And so I actually ended up staying outside of the accepted structure for urban fantasy, especially urban fantasy written by women, which was often perceived and marketed as a form of paranormal romance that was a little bit grimmer, a little bit more structured, and had a little less complex uh, sexual relationships. But most of them were, were expected to have, you know, sex and relationships, and I really kept it down on, on the down low. I always referred to it as um, private investigator, you know, paranormal detective novels, private investigator with ghosts. Oh, and incidentally, there's some, you know, monsters and, uh, and sex every rare once in a while. Literally, there was a sex scene every three books, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope things were happening off stage, or oh, yes. you'd have a very frustrated uh, <laughs> Harper Blaine. Yeah, they always uh, closed the door, you know, ah, and and went okay. about whatever they were doing elsewhere. Because I figured we all know what they're doing, and we don't mm-hmm. actually care. Mm-hmm. Just for those that maybe haven't picked up on it yet, so uh, Harper Blaine is the PI. She yes. generally either has clients who are of the undead uh, or fantastic or monstrosity sort of realm or the investigation that a person brings to him involves that. Is that fair or is it always one or the other? It's a little bit of both. In the first book, she has a fairly normal client, she thinks. And at the same time, she has another case with a very unnormal client. And the cases bang into each other, and she realizes one of her clients is actually a ghost, is dead. And then 
in the next one, she's actually working for a parapsychologist at the university. And then she ends up working for a friend, looking into the mysterious deaths of homeless people who have apparently been eaten by some kind of monster, and, you know, so on. Uh, At one point, she does actually have um, a client who is a ghost, but a lot of the time it's people who bring her a case that's kind of weird and strange and no one else wants to deal with it, and she gets stuck with it. Everything's normal for her in the first book until she has that incident, and then these strange things start happening, if if I'm remembering correctly, right? Yeah. Well, there's this rule, uh, supposed rule of thumb, you know, don't kill your character off in the first two chapters. And I killed her off by page two. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she was only dead for a couple of minutes. She was fine. She came back. It's not a big (laughs) deal. Gosh. (laughs) Well, I am a horrible host because while I have read Greywalker and I loved it, that is the only book in the series that I've read so far. Um, and That's so okay. when you're when you're telling me these other things, they're 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 new, they're completely new to me. I will tell you that Grey Walker survived the purge. When we wow. downsized to about seventy percent of our books had to go, and so you you survived the purge. Yay! Um, well, I hope you get around to reading the others because I I promise you they got better. <laughs> then they got pretty damn good because I thought the first one was great, and oh, and the you. way that that. Harper dealt with this new, I would almost call it an ability, if nothing else, or an awareness mm-hmm. of these these other beings and these other, you know, uh, I don't know, planes or however you want to look at it. The fact that now she knows there's ghosts and goblins and vampires and she actually can see them and treat with them. There's a psychological hit that she sort of takes mm-hmm. to that initially that she has to overcome. Um, but I suppose somewhere down the line there, that probably just becomes uh, the new normal. Yeah, it does. Although she is always aware that what is now normal for her is still strange and abnormal and disturbing to other people. The the funny thing is, a lot of the normal urban fantasy readers found the structure a little weird. And the mystery readers who came to it just jumped right in. They had no problem understanding this reluctance she has in the first book to embrace this ability. But the the hilarious part of it was the whole magic system and the whole ability to see what no one else sees was actually based on some really funky physics that I was I was reading about at the time. And so the whole magic system and her ability to see magic and ghosts and monsters and to kind of stand on an even plane with them was built around um, some theoretical high energy and particle physics and quantum physics concepts. So I actually got a write-up from a uh, a reviewer at Forbes magazine, who's one of the science uh, reviewers, saying, you know, I really like this because the magic makes sense to me because it's like physics. (laughs) Well, wasn't it it Robert Heinlein that said uh, that uh, any... Oh, any sufficiently advanced technology um, is akin to magic. Or will appear as magic. Appears to be magic, yeah. Uh, Or Asimov Um, or... You know, it's it's attributed to about six different people. And the first person I ever heard use it was uh, Dr. Robert Forward, who only wrote a couple of books. He was mostly known as an actual scientist rather than a science fiction writer. It, I always thought that was a pretty telling quote because it, it's it's true. If you think about the things that we do on a daily basis, I mean, smartphones and microwaves and cars, you go back 200 years, 
And mm-hmm. a lot of that would seem like magic. And there's a science behind it that we just, yeah. we, we understand. And, and so who's to say that there aren't other things that we don't understand that appear as magic that there's a scientific explanation for? Well, on the flip side of it is science often looks at something from the, the theory they, they've evolved and say, this fits here. Like, we don't actually understand how gravity works. We know there is gravity, and we know what effect it has, and how to have some effect upon it. We don't actually know how it works. But it fits in the theory, and it, and it functions along with the rest of the theory, so we accept this broad, fuzzy category of stuff we call gravity. Someday someone's going to figure out exactly how it works, and then we'll be able to figure out how to make it not work. (laughs) Uh. We'll get back to our interview with uh, Kat Richardson in just a few moments, but uh, uh, now is the time on the show where usually I turn it over to the experts to make some book recommendations. And by experts, I mean uh, people who work at or own uh, independent bookstores. Uh, particularly those associated with crime fiction, but not exclusively. But I'm going to do something a little bit different this month. Uh, I try to mix things up. Uh, For example, one month I had uh, prior guests uh, come on the show and and make their book recommendations. And another month I had people from my family do it, uh, which was pretty fun. Uh, But this month I'm going to be your expert. I'm going to give you uh, three quick books to think about reading if you're if you're on the prowl for for new books. Uh, next month we'll return to uh, the experts again, but uh, I got a chance to be an expert this episode. So uh, the three books, uh, well, really two books in one series that I want to recommend to you. Uh, one is the book that I'm reading right now. Uh, it's called Noir by Christopher Moore, and if you're not familiar with Christopher Moore, he is a, uh, a humor or satire writer and super funny, uh, very irreverent. He manages to make you laugh, but, it, but his stories also have some, uh, some touching parts to them as well, particularly Lamb resonated uh, uh, emotionally with, with me. Uh, so I, I, I highly recommend that. Noir is a different sort of take. It's a private detective uh, kind of, well, not private detective, kind of a hard-boiled crime uh, sort of uh, approach to 1947 San Francisco, and uh, honestly, I'm still reading it. So uh, this recommendation could be premature, but it's been great so far. He really he captures all the tropes of the uh, of the genre with a little bit of tongue in cheek, and uh, and I've had a couple moments where I've laughed out loud already, and I'm maybe a quarter way through the book. So Christopher Moore Noir recommendation number one. Recommendation number two uh, is a book called The Cartel by. Uh, Don Winslow. And uh, if you have been following crime fiction news at all recently, you'll see that his book, The Force, has uh, done really, really well. And it is uh, now out in paperback. In fact, it's uh, sitting on my nightstand uh, next up after uh, after Noir. Uh, but The Cartel is a, a little older book uh, that focuses on the drug trade in Mexico. And Don Winslow does a fantastic job of this multiple viewpoint approach, this very holistic approach to that entire world. It's it's pretty powerful stuff. If you've been watching Narcos on, on Netflix, that gives you a little bit of a taste of kind of what the book is like, but the book is it's more like the Godfather in scope. And, and so I can't recommend it highly enough. And 
Uh, Winslow is a great writer. Uh, so those are two, uh, Noir by Christopher Moore and The Cartel by, by Don Winslow. Um, and then uh, for a little different uh, type of book to kind of cleanse your palate in between crime fiction reads, um, I've been reading the uh, Saxon Chronicles by Bernard Cornwell. And these are the books that the Netflix series The Last Kingdom uh, are based upon. In fact, The Last Kingdom is the title of the first book in the series. And it's really a good series. I, it's not quite Game of Thrones fantasy-wise. It's historical fiction. A lot of the events that happen in the book are historical events, or at least the backdrop of them are the battles and and, and uh, some of the, the major players. Uh, the protagonist is a completely made-up person named Uhtred uh, of Bebenberg. But uh, the, there's about 10 of them now, I think, 9 or 10 of them, uh, something like that. Uh, I finally got caught up on them uh, just earlier this spring. Um, and it's it's very epic uh, in, in that you you know start out with this character as a kid and, and you follow him throughout his whole life. And, uh, you know, in the most recent book, he's, uh, you know, not elderly, but certainly uh, getting older, aged. Uh, definitely feeling his age, uh, gray in the beard and, and so forth, uh, has an adult uh, grown son, you know, and, and, and all this. And so if you like Game of Thrones, you might like this. If you like historical fiction, you definitely would. Cornwall does an excellent job uh, of, of narrating. Uh, the, the, it's a very compelling in the way that it's written. And, uh, and he inserts a lot of true history. And where it isn't true, he comes clean in the afterwards, so you can uh, always uh, read that uh, uh, the books are on audio as well, and a, a couple of them, that's how I read them, and and uh, uh, most of the narrators I came across were very, very good. Uh, so, there's your recommendation. Noir by Christopher Moore, The Cartel by Donwin Winslow, and The Saxon Chronicles by Bernard Cornwell, starting with The Last Kingdom. I would not steer you wrong, my friends. Give those a try, and I believe you will like what you read. So there's your professional, well, amateur this month, recommendation, uh, book recommendations. Uh, now let's get back to a couple other books uh, you ought to be reading, uh, those of Cat Richardson. Let's get back to our interview with Cat. Her first name is Harper, which is an awesome first name. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, there's, uh, there's a purpose in choosing that name. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the books that stuck with me from junior high and high school, and I've now read it three times, was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And when I needed a name for a detective who was this kind of smart female who was kind of thoughtful and a little bit out of the norm, but not to the degree that you would be terribly shocked, Harper was the name I, I chose. And then I just stuck a last name on that sounded good. And that's where she came from. And as a very odd coincidence, I had just become acquainted with Charlene Harris. And I did not know when we first met, because her book hadn't yet come out, that she had written a series about a character who was also named Harper. And so we each have a character named Harper. And they came out within a year and a half of each other. And people have always assumed that because Charlene and I are friends that I borrowed the name from Charlene. And it's actually a complete coincidence that we're both Harper Lee fans. That's a great book. I mean, my my wife is a middle school teacher, teaches English, uh, seventh and eighth graders. The eighth graders read that book in this district. 
and I had never read it growing up and she was always talking about it. And so I was like, well, it's a classic. I should read it. I'm an idiot for not having read it. So I picked it up and just devoured it. I was, I was amazed at what a great book it was and, and how funny Scout is and yeah. and what great lessons there are in there and, and what great use of language and, and, and Harp. She was so subtle in the way yeah. that she went about a very unsubtle topic. Yeah, and uh, it stands up very well. It really qualifies as literature mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the things that Harper Lee talked about and put in the mouths of her characters are still relevant. They're still social issues that we deal with and that most societies have some form of. And I, I love the book. Here and there, it it doesn't read as well as it did when I was younger, but there are other things, every time I reread it, I find something that I had kind of missed, and it's worth reading attentively. It also made a great film. They did a beautiful job on the film with Gregory Peck as as her father, as Atticus, and it's a great way to lead into the book if you're interested in reading it, is to see the film. It's, it's a fascinating book on so many levels, and it's very short and very easy to read, and the film is a good entry to it because you can appreciate both of them they they each do different things about the book very well um let's find out a little bit more about uh cat outside of <laughs> outside of the writing of the gray walker series and now the gaddis files you uh, said you had a journalism degree i think yeah. i read on your bio that you were an editor uh, yeah as well yeah i uh, actually have a degree in magazine editing as narrow uh, a field as that may be um when I went to Cal State Long Beach, they still offered an accredited degree in magazine journalism, which is long-form print. And I'm, I'm good at editing, lucky me. And so that's where I went. And for a while, I worked with a magazine group that published trade magazines, which is you know books for industries. And you always refer to a magazine um, as a book. It's just a, a weird thing that they do there. <laughs> and so I kind of moved sideways from that into educational writing. I used to work for the Gemological Institute of America to develop materials to train jewelers and gemologists. And then I moved to Seattle um, with my then fiance, now husband, and ended up doing a lot of other odd jobs uh, because I couldn't get a job in journalism up here for some reason. And ended up working at Microsoft as a contract editor for uh, support materials and advertising, things of that nature. And then little by little, I just kind of eased out of that. And along the way, I ended up writing some um, some RPG supplements for a couple of different groups. Well, don't gloss play. over that because that's actually on my <laughs> list here. So uh, uh, what, let's, let's dwell on that for a second. Okay. What, 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 did, what RPGs did you work on? I worked initially... Role-playing games, for those of you that... Role-playing games, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it started out actually with a bunch of um, computer gamers. I was online with a group of people at a little group called um, ttlg.com, Through the Looking Glass, and they were devotees of computer games designed by a group called Looking Glass Studios, now long since defunct. And they produced a game called Thief, and yeah. I... Yeah, and that was my first really, you know, sucked me in and, and ate my brain. That's computer a cool game. game. 
Yeah, I loved game. it very much. It was actually, I would say, probably the first of the first-person shooter stealth yeah. games. Right? Yeah, they, they called it uh, first-person sneaker. Yeah. And I, I enjoyed it, and I knew um, I fell in with the online people and started uh, talking to a lot of them you know, in their general discussion forum. And I got sucked into working on a teeny tiny little RPG a role-playing game, a tabletop RPG, from a, a tiny company. I think they still exist. They're called Dark Quest Games, LLC. Yeah, and I wrote all of the the racial information, the race and society people information about um, a group called the Moon Elves. So I didn't do any of the technical development. I did all of the racial development and talked about, you know, their social structures and who they were and where they came from and what they did and what they thought and how they interacted with nature and each other. So Moon Elves, that's what I did. And then I worked on a video game expansion that the fans built for Thief. Uh, It was called T2X or Thief 2 Expansion. And it was unauthorized, but at the time, Looking Glass Studios was dying and being eaten up by uh, their parent publisher, um, edos.com, and so they kind of turned a blind eye to our building this 13-mission story. That's a whole game. (laughs) Yeah, it was a whole game. It had a complete story arc, it had character development arcs. And I was the uh, character and plot development lead for that. I I herded the cats and helped them develop the story and the characters for that expansion, which has none of the copywritten characters in it. So we didn't tread on their copyright. We just including the protagonist. Including the protagonist, we developed our own protagonist. So you just um, use their game engine and their world, yeah. basically. We used the engine, we used the world, we used we referenced people, but we never showed them and we never said anything about them that wasn't part of the established game. So that was lots of fun. That, that does sound like fun. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm an unabashed uh, computer game player. The role-playing ones are fun, especially these days, because... Uh, in a lot of them, it's almost like you're playing a movie. It's not Space Invaders or Pac-Man anymore, which were great in their own right, mm-hmm. but it's it's far more developed and and uh, nuanced, and and there's character arc, and even in the open world sort of settings, they're they're designed to tell a story. And some of the better stories I've read in the last few years have actually been part of a, a, a computer game or a video game. Well, it used to be a bit of a joke uh, in the industry. Uh, these tie-in books, uh, as, as we call them, you know, based on things like Star Trek or uh, World of Warcraft or, you know, Ravenloft or some other game that people were playing or a television show that people were watching and, and writing their own little fanfic on the side. And it was kind of a joke, you know, these things are kind of silly, they're cheesy, they're not very well developed, you're borrowing other people's stuff. And these days, video games produce some really amazing story and great character arc and there's some really fascinating things going on in the story end and and the world building on some of these and all of the controversies aside about you know people being mean to other people and the imbalance of male and female workers blah blah yeah it's true but that's less interesting to me than what's happening with story and character development and how players are involved when they play 
with discovering the world and discovering story and you can go as deep into that as you want or you can just run and gun through it and get to the end and you know win the game there's a lot going on and I keep getting sucked into games like that which in a way is unfortunate because then I'm not working (laughs) (laughs) which games are you talking about oh my brain is being sucked out of my ear right now by uh, of all things Assassin's Creed Origin I haven't played any of the others because I kind of wasn't interested in the dynamics of them. But this one, they've made some of the dynamics, the parkour and the fight dynamics a little easier. But they also have built this huge open world that's based on ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. And they've got a section of the game that they call it the Discovery Tour. And you can go and effectively explore ancient Egypt without having to fight battles and complete quests and so on. You just go out and and look at their research, which they've made very friendly and very accessible, and it's little short bits, and it only takes, you know, 5 to 20 minutes, depending on which section, to go through it. You can interact with it, you can play with it, and it's really fun. And they've spun it off, just that section, the Discovery Tour, as as an independent teaching tool and teachers can take it without having to play the rest of the game, without having to have all the rest of that in their classroom, and use it as part of their lesson plan if they're t- teaching about ancient Egypt. Hmm. All kinds of fun things. And it's sort of like the developer's version of, hey, my research, let me show you it. But at the same time, it's beautifully done. And hmm. the world is so open that you can you can literally make your character make bread or participate in the ritual functions of mummification and and burial or go to a temple and be involved in, you know, some kind of of, uh, festival and things like that or or go out on the farm and have to, you know, pick up water and and dump it on the crops. And it's really fun, and yet it's not really the game. It's the background of the game. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of things like that going on in... The computer game world right now where people are developing either a piece of the real world or of an imagined world that is very rich and very open and really encourages the player if they're interested in thinking about this at a much higher level than just running through the countryside uh, i haven't played that one yet it's it i've played several others in this series i remember playing the second one it's the second one <laughs> is set in uh, the Italian Renaissance. Yeah. yeah. And you play Ezio somebody. I can't remember his last name. <laughs> the cool thing about that was we had just gone to Italy. Or we were there for four weeks, my wife and, and my parents and I. And I was playing this game where I was running around Florence and climbing up the Duomo there. And, <laughs> you know, and, and I'd been on those same streets yeah. uh, just and, and, and the, the level of detail that was paid to that yeah. was pretty extreme. It was pretty, pretty neat. Uh, I think the stigma of video gaming is at least mostly gone. I don't think people are quite as stodgy about that when you have people our age who (laughs) still enjoy those things you know yeah there's still the idea that the average gamer is a 13 year old boy except if you think about it for any amount of time you realize that can't be true because those 13 year old boys grew up and became 30 year old 40 year old 50 year old adults exactly still playing yeah that's why i'm always interested in them and they provide ideas about 
you know, how I can, I can make things move a little faster in my own fiction, which is my, my biggest failure is my, my pacing is never good enough to satisfy me. I always feel like I'm moving too slow. Yeah, I get a, I got a note. I get them regularly from readers saying, gosh, you're really physically hard on your characters. I mean, you beat them up all the time. And I'm saying, yeah, because they go out and they do things where people feel threatened by them. And the response to feeling threatened is either to run away or to beat up on the thing that's threatening you. And so my characters get beaten to a pulp on a fairly regular basis. And then they wander around for the rest of the story being bruised and uncomfortable and miserable. (laughs) That's one of the things I liked about Grey Walker was, you know, I, I mean, I, I was worried that I might not enjoy it because of because of the urban fantasy elements. They're not really in my wheelhouse. I, I, they're yeah. okay, but I don't I don't seek them out. And it was that realism in the physical combat and in mm-hmm. in the investigative avenues and and such mm-hmm. that really made it such a a, a good book. In fact, I'm 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 surprised I haven't read the rest of the series. The more I think about it. Uh, I'll have well, to get you know, you get, in, you get busy, and you can't always make time, especially if it doesn't like arrive on your doorstep or on your Kindle automatically. <laughs> you have to go out and find it. And with the failure of small bookstores, it sometimes is difficult to just go out and get a book. You have to go out of your way to go to Barnes and Noble or a local bookstore, or remind yourself that you want that book and go and order it on Amazon or or whatever you do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just automatically show up. Hey, look, mm-hmm. here's my book. Uh, the the Blood Orbit, the mm-hmm. first Gaddis file, w- was just released or is about to be released? It will be released. Uh, the official on-shelf date is May 8, although mm-hmm. it's not a hard date. It'll probably be sneaking into the market, you know, beginning over the previous weekend or even a week earlier, depending on uh, when people get it. It'll obviously be up to the individual stores to whether they're going to shelve it early or wait until Tuesday. Well, I'm excited for you. That's a whole new uh, a whole new journey. And uh, I'm terribly excited too. <laughs> and I, I like that you can uh, you're going to be a little grittier. Uh, and yeah. I didn't think that uh, Gray Walker was light by any means, but <laughs> oh, uh, no. <laughs> uh, but but I'll have to check it out. Okay, I, I hope that you will, and I hope you'll enjoy it. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how uh, how people respond to it. Well, Kat, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and good luck with the new book. Thanks very much, Frank. Well, thank you, Kat. Uh, great to great to talk to her. It's been a while since I've managed to uh, have any kind of a conversation with her, and uh, a super person and very interesting books. The Grey Walker series, well worth your time, and uh, the new series sounds very cool. Uh, and uh, I hope you enjoyed hearing uh, from an author who, you know, while she writes crime fiction uh, officially, uh, you know, technically, um, not your typical crime fiction writer that have been has, has been on this show. The urban fantasy angle with Grey Walker and now the sci-fi angle with the new books. I'm glad I was able to mix it up a little bit. Uh, on our next show, we're going to mix it up even further. We're going to talk to Asa Bradley, whose books uh, are about Vikings and, well, we'll find out more next month. But uh, we caught up with awesome Marie Bradley and asked her a few quick hit questions. Awesome Marie Bradley, what city do you live in now? I live in a small town called Nine Mile Falls outside of Spokane, Washington. Who is your favorite writer? Ilona Andrews and Janine Frost. 
What's your favorite movie? French Kiss with Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein. Favorite TV show? Uh, Sense8. Do you have a nickname? Not now. I used to when I was younger. I used to go by Larson because that was my last name and that was what was on all my team jerseys. I played a lot of sports. What are you working on right now? Book three in my Immortal Viking Warrior series. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Diving. What's your favorite sport? Watching tennis. Your favorite musician? Alicia Keys and Maroon 5. Your five-second advice to aspiring writers? Keep writing. Write the next book. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Galapagos Islands. I'd like to go diving there. What is your favorite quote? Write drunk, edit sober. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. All right. Well, now you know at least a little bit about Awesome Marie Bradley, and I will be interviewing her at length for the June episode, episode 16 of Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'd like to say thank you to Kat Richardson for coming on the show, to Eric Campbell for uh, sponsoring the show, Down and Out Books, uh, and to you, the uh, listener, for tuning in and listening to this episode and all the episodes. Please, if you like the episode, please hit like. Uh, subscribe, all that good stuff. Certainly, I appreciate each and every one of you, and you're the reason why I continue to do this. You and the and the fact that I get to talk to some pretty cool writers every every month. This is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.